This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry, you're getting real life insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to another episode. I'm really excited about this episode because I want to talk to you quickly about some small transitions that I'm going to be making. Actually, a big transition. You know, the story of docs outside the box is obviously telling the story of docs who are doing extraordinary things outside of medicine. But I think we've kind of told that story already. I think you guys get the point that we can do some really cool ass stuff outside of the hospital. So I really want to start focusing on the next challenge. The next challenge is really focusing on topics that are outside of the box. I'm going to be slowly transitioning those into the format of the show. And whether the topic is germane to us as physicians or wherever you are along the path of becoming a medical professional, whether it's something that affects us on a daily basis, it's something that we all should have an opinion on. Now, I started this last year when I did an episode on what docs can learn from NBA free agency. A lot of you all like that. I knew because there was a bunch of downloads based off of that. But then I also later on did another episode on what doctors can learn from Damon Dash, a very famous record executive, record owner of Rockefeller Records, what they can learn about business and entrepreneurship. And I just want to kind of continue that. I think for me, that's something that I'm really excited about. Obviously, something that you all are really excited about. And my next guest is going to be talking about something that she wrote about in a New York Times op-ed. Her name is Daniel Ofri. She's a special guest. And she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that received a lot of buzz. The name of the op-ed was called The Business of Healthcare Depends on Exploiting Doctors and Nurses. So just by the name, you can tell how this can be taken. So this is going to be a really great conversation. This is where I ask her questions about where her mind was at when she decided to write this. What kind of feedback was she getting with this? But we also get to learn a little bit more about Dr. Ofri and how she's been able to be not just a physician, not just an author, but also a well-sought-after speaker. So I'm excited about this one. Make sure you share this with others. Other people know what you think about this. Make sure you reach out to me on social media, mainly through Instagram, and let me know what you think about this article. Without further ado, I present Dr. Daniel Ofri. Let's get it. Very excited to have physician, author, and commentator Dr. Danielle Ofri, who is an internist at Bellevue Hospital also editor-in-chief of the Bellevue Literary Review. She also regularly writes for the New York Times, Slate Magazine, and other publications about medicine and the doctor-patient relationship. 
Dr. Ofri is a heavy hitter. She has authored over five books. The most recent book is What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. And she's done multiple TED Talks, including Deconstruction, Perfection, and Fear, A Necessary Emotion. Dr. Ofri, welcome to Docs Outside the Box. Thank you. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, I'm impressed by your accomplishments, what you've been able to do as an internist and obviously as an author and even as a, almost a social commentator. I think that's really, really exciting. I think that's something that I aspire as a physician to have. That is what I want my legacy to be, not just what's located or what happens within the hospital. But I was really intrigued by the article that recently came out as an op-ed in the New York Times. The name of it was called The Business of Healthcare Depends on Exploiting Doctors and Nurses. Very interested in that. Wanted to know what the feedback was. So let's just start from the beginning. This came out. What's been your thoughts on this? What's been the feedback from this type of... uh, It's funny because you never know what's going to resonate. And for me, I was just writing about a lousy day I was having. Really? Uh, Back in April, we switched to EMRs. So it was quite a difficult, it was a very epic transition, shall we say. Well, the other thing too, is that you're at a major hospital too. So this is a big deal to change EMRs. Oh yeah. So we're the oldest public hospital in the country. We're huge. We have half a million ambulatory visits per year. So it's big. And so transitioning a hospital to a new EMR from the one we had for 20 years worth of data, you know, we have 4,000 employees, hundreds of thousands of patients. So it was a really difficult transition. And I think these transitions, typically you're supposed to hire an army of, you know, clerical people to do it, but we of course don't have that. So where does the work fall on? It falls on the doctors and nurses. And we realize as we're transitioning EMR, that if you really want to get all the data migrated over, you want to do it right. You don't want to miss out on old surgeries and cardiac cath that Beth is real and vaccination someplace else. It's all important. But the truth is no one else really cares as much as the primary care doctor does. And so for each patient, it would take more than an hour. And we realized this is not going to be sustainable. But if you didn't do it, it was just going to be bad medicine. And so what kind of happened is the ball kind of dropped and who's going to pick it up? but the clinical people, because we can't work without it. Hmm. And so it made me realize, you know, boy, if we clocked out when our hours were over, it would collapse, would never work. So I started writing from this experience and recognizing that if you added 30% workload to a factory, you know, it wouldn't run. If you did it to a lawyer's office, you'd be seeing bills like you wouldn't believe. But in a hospital, you can just throw in 30% more work and by and large, nurses and doctors, they don't leave if it's you know, crucial to patient care, we do it. And I realize it becomes a form of exploitation. Now, I'll preface it by saying that I do not think it's premeditated exploitation. I don't think there's a plot. How can we take advantage of doctors? Though some people do think that, but I don't. But it becomes administrative creep as there's more and more and more work and EMR allows more work to be doled out. Doctors just, we absorb it, we absorb it, we absorb it because you can't go home until it's all done. So that's how it started. And this turned out to be the piece of writing for which I've had the most response of anything I've written my entire life. <laughs> so on the Times site, there was more than a thousand comments. They had to close it down because they didn't have staff to really? moderate it. I think I got it at last count, almost 300 individual letters from people, you know, all saying the same thing, you know, that's what I'm feeling right now. So I feel like it, and even the editor wrote to me and said, I think you really touched a nerve and they've never done that before. So I think it did touch a nerve. Oh, it definitely touched a nerve with me because I've been saying this for a long time and I'm fairly, you know, I guess, mid-career now, but everything that you wrote in your op-ed touched me. I feel that way. I do trauma surgery 
And it's, you know, first of all, as a surgeon, it's that notion of you don't leave until you get everything done, right? And even though we're shifting more to shift work, you still don't leave until you get everything done. You don't want to be called an itinerant surgeon. So when you wrote this, it just really touched me in a way that I said, you know what, I got to have you on the show to talk about this. And I'm really interested, like the feedback that you got, I guess, from the general public, was it much different than what you got from physicians and other medical well, professionals? It's interesting. I thought I was writing what seemed so obvious, but you know, the general public doesn't know that. And a lot of people, you know, I had even my mother and my you know, family was like, oh, I don't know that's the way it goes. They really had no idea. And they were shocked and distressed. And a few people said, you know, I don't want my doctor to be so overworked because then they're not really focusing on me. If their, you know, attention and priorities are being pulled away for, you know, minutia data entry, they're not really thinking about my problem. And so I think patients recognize that their health is at risk when their doctors are reduced to data entry clerks. And so that's one big thing. I think for physicians, I think it did touch home for most people because, right, no one goes, even if you're a shift worker, I mean, you know, my shift ended, I had patients this morning. And I'm getting ready to leave. And I get a call. Oh, one more patient showed up late. She thought her appointment was later. So what are you going to do? You're going to you stay. You're going to stay. That's just the way it goes. There's no such thing as lunch hour or you know, whatever. You just stay till it's done. And you can't leave till the note's written appropriately. I don't want to write a half-assed note that someone can't follow my logic. It's important. So if you want to do a good job, then you're forced into an impossible bind. And you can either stay for hours or you cut corners. Do you think that... Because oftentimes I feel like even when I write my notes, I'm no longer writing it for completeness sake. I'm writing it to make sure that the coders, one, can understand it and that it doesn't flag a chart and I have to go back and rewrite it. And now that's just the way how it is for me, but I understand what you're saying. We have to do all these things. I was seeing my, this last patient and you know, there's so many things I have to do just because you have to do them. Right. So I do them because you can't close the note if you don't. But in addition, I also want to make sure that when I come back to my patient in five months, that I know what was going on. So I've got to also write a coherent clinical, I need my reasoning. Why am I doing this? And what do I plan to do with the results? So when I go back or someone else goes back or she ends up in the ED and someone's got to look at her chart, I want them to see my notes and say, ah, I know what's going on. So you end up having to do both. And it's very, very hard to do in this day and age. Now that the dust has settled, I guess, so to speak, if you had the opportunity to kind of rewrite this article, would you kind of focus on the same things again? Or do you stand by that it's the EMRs, oh. it's the creep of administration that's really at the center of this? I thought I did, but maybe not. To clarify, the EMR isn't the enemy. Because I've had some feedback from, let's say, people in more administrative roles saying that I was missing the good parts of the EMR. And I don't think I am. I think I wrote about the good. I think it's great. I mean, listen, how many times do you spend, you know, back in the old days chasing down you know, the x-ray that's in the surgeon's back pocket and he's off in another hospital or the charts in dermatology clinic. I mean, it is much better to have a centralized, you know, place for a repository for data. That's great. So a lot of things are better. Medication renewal, much better. But the EMR is a tool with which you can add on more administrative tasks for doctors very easily. I agree. Right. It's much outside of that. You can't say, okay, hey doc, you got to work 20 more hours. That's hard to do. But you can put 20 more fields on the EMR without really asking anyone. All of a sudden, oh my gosh, there's 20 more things to do and you can't close your note. And you'll get you know, dinged by your administrator if you haven't finished your work. So it becomes a vehicle. And most of these things are just data for the sake of data. And while they may have some overriding, like our old EMR required us to do all sorts of things, you know, domestic violence screening and asthma action plan, HIV screening, depression screening, all important things, but you can't do all of them really. 
And do I think the ophthalmologist actually asked about domestic violence at each visit? Probably not, Mm -hmm. but they had to check the box. They were forced to lie. And that part is corrosive because when you ask committed people to cut corners and lie, that just saps the morale. You know, I got my MBA while in medical school. And one of the projects that we had to do was take a private practice through the process of investigating and then going to a bank and getting the funding for an EMR system. It was back in like 2004, so already, you know, way into using EMRs. But I recently saw an article that showed like, you know, 10, 20 years later, has EMRs really, you know, changed the patient-doctor relationship in a positive direction? And I think the article basically said, in some regards, everything that you mentioned is true, but ultimately the biggest result has been the ability to document better and the ability to bill better from hospitals. Right, because these EMRs were created for billing purposes originally. And then clinical care was tacked on, but it wasn't developed. <laughs> Doctors didn't sit down and say, this is how I take care of patients. Here's how I think. That, you know, came on secondarily. Because so I have a sort of a series of articles all emanating from this difficult rupture, a few more coming out in The Lancet and academic medicine. One thing I think has really been impacted is the ability to look at your patient while you talk. I find it so difficult to be staring at a computer screen when my patient's sitting there. But the truth is, I have no choice. I will never get done unless I am actively, you know, feeding the EMR while they're there. So I think patients like the EMR. Some of them love the patient portal. You know, renewing medications, much easier. Sending an email to your doctor, easier than calling. Great. But, you know, the in-basket becomes this yoke around your neck. In fact, the piece I'm doing for Journal Club next week shows the, I don't know if you can see that, but this is from uh, Health Affairs about the relationship of uh, in-basket size to burnout. Right. <laughs> you know, so true. <laughs> it is totally true. Because, you know, you, it's like Sisyphus. You know, you work your hardest to clear it out and it just keeps filling up. And it's easy to generate more work. And, you know, are we getting better patient care out of it? You know, I'm not sure. Some things might be better, but a lot of things are worse. Not saying we should scrap it and go back to the paper chart, but we've kind of gotten lazy by just dumping more administrative things on the doctor. And right now, so one of my big beefs is you can hardly read a progress note now because people just kind of lift everything so to be complete and not get sued. But like, all you want is that one nugget, that one paragraph that sort of summarizes what's going on, what I'm doing, and that's buried. So how did you find out this information about the administrative creep, about basically the amount of personnel within the C-suite, the administrative offices, compared to medical profession? I think, would you say tripled or quadrupled or something like that? I think someone actually sent it to me. That's crazy. a study that showed, I think since 1970, the number of doctors went up by 50% and the administrators went up by (laughs) 3,000%. So now it's on average 10 admins per one physician. Now, some of that is because there's increasing regulations that they, you know, you people do it. But at some point, you know, what is going on? And if those admins could be nurses, you know, or nutritionists, or, you know, doctors, I think we really need them there. So one of my things I'm proposing in my next piece is that I think that all those admins, if anyone in a C-suite has an MD or RN on their name, they need to be in clinic once a month or twice a month. They've Mm -hmm. got to see or be on the wards. And the ones without clinical degrees, they should answer the phones at the front desk one morning a month. Just see what it's like to be the front desk of the hospital or clinic and then you can start making decisions. But, you know, go, we need help answering the phones, you know, come on down. I love it. And, you know, it's interesting at the place that I work, I actually saw some administrative quote unquote fellows and another tag that said administrative resident. I didn't even know that there was yeah. a fellowship for administration. So these are, you know, people who 
are within the healthcare administrative field, but I didn't know that there's residencies for them. They mean it, but they have to see what they have no idea. I think try calling the clinic to make an appointment. They should do that once a month and see what it's like. Call for a med refill, see how hard it is for our patients to do that. It's impossible. Get through to your doctor. It's really hard. Now, when writing this op-ed, just so we can kind of be a fly on the wall, how long did it take you to write this? Did you just have like that one like frustrating moment and at the middle of the night, you're kind of just writing this manifesto? Was it like one of those or? Well, I think it was probably week four of the transition because, you know, week one, they cut the patients in half, week two and three, two thirds. And then by week four, they're like, oh, you're all used to it now, 100%. Now, of course, we're somewhat used to it, but of course, every patient is new to the system. It was a disaster. And so on all these metrics that they collect, I'm thinking one metric ought to be how many times per month does a fully licensed board certified physician break down in tears in their exam room? Because that's a metric that, you know, I'm seeing all around, like you're just sinking in the swamp. So kind of in those weeks, I kind of began writing it. I would say, you know, between patient care sessions, I probably wrote it over the course of a week or two, kind of turn over, revisit it, pardon the ambulance. No, just adds to the authenticity of it. You're really, you're really in it. So. Yeah, you know, we call it bedpan alley because we have so many hospitals up the road. Yeah, so I probably wrote it over the course of two or three weeks and then sent it off. You listen to the Times, they turn stuff down, they take some stuff, you never know. And they took that one and then... Off it went. Well, one thing I learned right before we started recording is you said that this actually wasn't the title or you didn't no. expect this to be the title of your... No. So for op-eds, you, the writer does not choose the title. For anything in a mainstream journalist, newspaper, Slate magazine, anything like that, they choose the title. They want titles that are eye, whatever their criteria, eye-catching, fits the space they have, all kinds of things. So they chose the title to frame it as exploitation Although that was one of the points of the articles, it wasn't the only one, but by making that the title, it certainly got people's attention, obviously, and it did frame the article. So the small amount of negative feedback I got from people more administrative were, you know, we're not actually exploiting you. That's an unfair accusation. Okay. Now that they mentioned that, how do you feel about it? Do you think there is exploitation going on? And I believe I wrote that pretty clearly that I do not think it's a, you know, a grand calculated plan to take advantage of your doctors and nurses. I don't think there's malicious intent, but I do think there's easy creep because I get it. The numbers don't add up financially in a hospital. You can't just, you know, magically hire, you know, 50 more attendings and you make the system run. So you end up, you know, trying to make things work. And a lot of the ways that is expanding, you know, the work for each given doctor nurse to do and just figure it'll work out somehow. You know, the same way they kind of expect you to be in two places at once, or just squeeze that patient in. Well, what does that mean to squeeze a patient? There's no like extra time. I can't expand it. So squeezing a patient in means, you know, taking time from home with my family or anything else, but they kind of expect you to do that. So it's sort of kind of magical thinking. And that part is it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And part of it is external regulations, you know, that's not their fault, but they have them. And it just gets, it's easy to pass it on to the doctors and nurses through the EMR. So it becomes exploitation, you know, in practice, even if it's not the intention. Hey docs, there's a saying, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably on the menu. Now's the time to define your future by being a part of the physician CEO program. Physician CEO is a business immersion program developed by MBA faculty from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. You're getting an intensive MBA style education made up of modules that cover topics like leadership, entrepreneurial ventures, and everybody's favorite, branding. And guess what? This program is designed for busy physicians like yourself who don't have time for an MBA, but still want to be a better version of yourself. 
trust me, the program gets you in focus from day one. So get those skills needed to lead a hospital or start a new venture. You're always going to ensure that there's an open seat waiting for you at the table. Don't miss this opportunity because class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Do you think we play a role? So I'm talking, when I say we, I mean us physicians, medical professionals. Do we play a role in this, I put in quotes, exploitation or this creep? Well, you know, we do in that mostly we don't abandon our patients. So if you're supposed to leave at six, but it takes till 9 p.m. to finish the work, mostly we do it because, you know, you don't want to leave. You can't leave your patient alert. It's just wrong. Right. We, I guess we could all go on strike. And maybe well, if you're working in a factory, that's you what I was, leading, I was leading to that. I was just like, well, is there a place where we can take a stand? Obviously not as dramatic as a strike, but there's got to be some type of way that, you know, as physicians or medical professionals that we can say, you know what, like enough's enough. But I don't know that next. Yeah, I don't know because it's antithetical to us if it's going to harm our patients. Right. So if we were to stop working at 5 p.m., it would harm our patients. If we were to cut corners on the note, it would harm our patients. So, you know, what can we really do if you actually care? And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times we say, oh, you know, these doctors, they don't care. Well, you know, they're all jaded. You know, there are probably a few bad apples, but mostly people go into medicine and to nursing because they want to be there. If they wanted fame and fortune money, they get an MBA and go to Wall Street, right? They're not going to sit and train for 15 years. You know, it's easier ways to make money in this life. So people who are there want to be there, want to do the right thing, but they're being, it's so hard to do it that they're really frustrated, but we just can't walk away from our patients. So I think we're kind of stuck. Someone suggested to me, maybe one day, all of us should simply not code our visits. Mm. Do all the clinical care, nobody code. That might wait. It's sort of a way to strike against the administrative part, but not really harm your patients. And I do think it probably, like you mentioned, it probably is going to have to be a multi-dimensional type of approach. Because the reason I asked that question is for a follow-up question, which mm-hmm. is if we do play a role, like what can we do to change the system? Is it can we change the system? Is it a grassroots type of thing where physicians get together and form a group and take a step that way, or is it a top-down like an AMA? or medical societies, they're reaching out, they're lobbying, changing. Well, I think it's both. The one thing is we need to, you know, get our professional groups on the ball a little bit mm-hmm. because listen, they rely on us. They don't exist without us. And I think we have to make, they got tons of money to lobby and that's, you know, our dues and our money. So yes, we should really, <laughs> you know, shake up our representatives, but then in our own institutions, we have to speak up loudly. So one time I went through a, like a week or two is, Sometimes when you try to do a medication, like a million and one, you know, medication alerts that are ridiculous, doesn't interact with alcohol pads, like stupid things come up. And I started filing patient safety reports saying patient safety is at risk. You know, when I'm being flooded with alcohol pad, you know, interactions, I can't see the real ones. Mm. So you could flood the system every time you think that what's going on impacts patient safety. Were you getting feedback from that or were were getting pissed because they have to follow up on all those. And at some point I stopped because it's also my own colleagues are getting stuck with that, but I, you can make the point that way. So there are ways to do it, to let your administration know it's really serious because patient safety is at risk. You know, when you're required to do so much data entry, you can lose the, you know, the forest for the trees and that's dangerous for patients. Now that you've been in medicine for a while and you've gotten to see, I'm sure there's a change in the mindset, how people talk about things, express themselves from a physician standpoint. From when you first started practicing to now, can you compare and contrast, you know, that mind shift if there is a mindset? Yeah. Well, so, you know, there's always, you know, we have rose-colored glasses back in the days of the giants. 
the one thing I see in the sort of generation kind of trained on more of the shift mentality and, and electronic medical record, it's very easy to fall back on the copy and paste mentality, you know, to sort of copy that note or just copy what I was doing in my head, you know, a little kind of afraid to go to the bedside and really, you know, talk with the patient and maybe a little less sense of ownership. You know, the idea that, okay, well, you know, there's sort of a diffusion because the team-based medicine, which is great in many respects, but that does diffuse ownership. At some point, someone will say, you know, I'm responsible, especially when the patient's doing fine, not a problem, but when the patient's crashing, someone's got to get up there and say, I'm not leaving until this is sorted out. And that happens less when there's a shift mentality or shift rules. You must leave by 16 hours or whatever it is. Or it's a team that no one really has, you know, the ownership, this is my patient. I've parked my derriere here at the bedside until I get this blood pressure up and I don't care what it takes. That seems a little bit less. Just want to pivot a little bit. When did you realize that you had this like literary talent, literary bug that you just kind of had to satisfy? When did that first start? Well, I'd say it wasn't necessarily a drive for a literary issue. So I trained during the height of the AIDS epidemic in New York City, which was pretty hellacious for all who remember it. And so after, and Bellevue being a city hospital is quite ground zero for that. You know, our patients were dying and they were dying brutal deaths. They were the same age as we were. So it was pretty rough. And I did an MD, PhD. So I wasn't training for a pretty long time. So I was pretty exhausted by the end. So I took off a year and a half. It was like seven um, years, eight years of training almost, right? Yeah. Then plus, you know, residency. So I took off a year and a half. I did locum tenens, you know, to make some money. And I would work for four or five weeks, wherever. And then I would take off and travel in South America. So the money ran out. And I called Collect from Oaxaca. What do you got? And I'd work in another practice. And it was during that time that I began to write down the stories of my training. Hmm. Because I remember while they were happening, thinking, these are singular experiences. You know, I should write these down. But of course, who had time training? So this was my chance to write them down and think about them. We had no time to think and contemplate what it means to see your generation being killed off. And I came back to work at Bellevue, went to get a job, and there was a hiring freeze. And when they finally had a spot, there was a 60% FTE position available, which I didn't never consider working anything less than full-time, but whatever I needed, I had loans, so I took it. And on one of the days off, I picked up a writing brochure off the street and started taking a writing class. And really, it just kind of started from there. And then those essays became my first book, and that's really how it started. Now, is there, like, you know, when you're doing your op-eds, when you're writing your chapters, writing your books... You oftentimes have like, do you have like favorite, you know, op-eds that you write? Or is there anything that you look back on? You're like, man, I really enjoyed writing that. Do you get writer's block? Because I'm really fascinated with this, the whole process of writing. Yeah, it really varies. So I would say my first book, those first essays that are stories that I wrote were, you know, the most intense stories from residency. I mean, those are the powerful ones you remember. You know, you listen, you see 5,000 patients over the course of training, but there's probably 20 that are seared in your soul. And those you just pour out. So that was in some ways really easy to write. And in some ways, my favorite still, because those are the ones that I'll never forget those moments. There are definitely times you have writer's block. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're working in the outpatient, it's not quite as dramatic as inpatient. So you have to think of a different way to find drama when you're checking, you know, LDL and, you know, not treating sepsis. It's not just like, you know, what happened today and kind of think now, can I stretch that out to something bigger than just my little experience? Is there something that I can point out to the world that doesn't know what life is like in medicine? And like I wrote a piece on why doctors don't call in sick. We're calling when I was a resident. I wasn't feeling well, but you know, what are you gonna do? Not show up? Right. And so having puked my guts out in the call room and then being on an IV saline, you know, for my intern, and then still, you know, working, doing sign out. Right. And I'm thinking now, that was so stupid, right? I could have been contagious. I could have spread a GI bug to my patients. 
but we had no framework for how to deal with our own sickness. And of course, no backup. So you couldn't go, (laughs) if you're sick, your friends have to work twice as much. And so, but people don't know that outside. So how can I expand that outside my little experience? Do you think like the majority of your writing is towards the general public or do you write for other physicians? I'd like to address both. So I try to find that sweet spot where it can still be technical enough for doctors to appreciate, but in a way that a lay audience can read to without being condescending in explanations. So rather than say, oh, X disease means this, try and use the name of terminology and then weave in what it is so you get it without having to have been told. And then a doctor will feel comfortable reading it also. So that's my goal. So I want to take this moment just to ask you some really quick, fast fire questions. Just sure. I'll ask you a question. And you just tell me what comes off the top of your head. So you've amassed a ton of knowledge, been through so many different experiences. If you had the opportunity to take all that you know now and go back and tell yourself or teach yourself something as a medical student or even as a pre-med student, what would that be? That the most fun of medicine is just getting to know patients. I kind of had thought medicine would be about science, which I love, and I did a PhD in basic science. But what's really fun and amazing is getting into people's lives and what a treat. And it's so interesting and the most rewarding part of medicine. Yeah, I love that answer. What's a personal habit that has helped you become as successful as you have or even just become a doc outside the box? Stop giving a shit what anyone thinks about yes, you. I love it. I just, yes. I don't care. Dr. Ofer, I just don't care. Again, please. <laughs> I just <laughs> I no longer it. care, you know, what they say about what you're wearing, what you say, what you do. You know, I figure if they want to come fire me, fine. But who's going to see all the patients who are booked right. for me? They're going to come down and see them. Great. <laughs> so that's the, I don't care any longer. That's a good point. That's actually a really good answer to that question I asked earlier. Like, what can yeah. we do? Is just like, just be more of ourselves and right. they're not going to get rid of us. Right. So. If there's someone that inspires you or if there is like a famous figure out there that you wouldn't mind trading places with for 24 hours, is there such a person? If so, who is there? Well, I always admired and loved Oliver Sacks. And I liked his ability to really think deeply and slowly. And the way he would approach cases, you know, we have so little time for that. But boy, if you really take the time to think, you can find out a lot. And he was so creative and unusual. And we became kind of letter writing pals toward the end of his life. Which really? was such an honor. And I, then I was able to interview him on stage once. I just so admired his ability to, you know, not give in to like the rush and craziness. Like the essence is this moment, then just take that moment. What's been the transition like been from physician and then also author to now, you know, public speaker, TED speaker? I've seen multiple of your YouTube videos. What's been that transition like? It sort of flowed somewhat imperceptibly mm-hmm. and they flowed over. I mean, you end up getting, you know, more negative feedback the more public you are. And so there are places where, you know, no matter what you write, the comments come back, those money-grubbing doctors, and you could be giving your left pancreas to your patients <laughs> to those money-grubbing doctors. And so you do get that. You know, I wrote a piece of confronting a patient who declined vaccines to really pursue why he was doing it. And then a couple of anti-vaxxers like got on my case and just, you know, tormented me with email. I couldn't get rid of them. So you get a little more of that, the more out you are. That's the side that we don't get a chance to see. Right. But on the flip side, you get much more like people write to you and say, wow, thank you for sharing that. Or I didn't know that. Or I really appreciate that. Or it resonated for me. Someone said, you know, I was ready to quit residency, but I read this and that really inspired me to go on or I wanted to go into medical school. So those kind of things are, you know, you just can't put a price on that. It's really an incredible honor and amazing feeling. Mm. Now, if you had the opportunity to, let's say, go on top of a mountaintop and talk to all the doctors that are out there, they're below you, they're, they're listening mm-hmm. to what you have to say. 
what's the one thing that you would say to all the doctors out there? Don't be afraid to talk about what's wrong with medicine, mm. but don't be afraid to talk about what's right with medicine. Okay. I mean, we are so lucky. I mean, look at your colleagues who are sitting in cubicles with spreadsheets and, you know, in meetings about scalability and widgets, you think, my God, shoot me if I have to be there. We get to be with people when they really need us and we get to move the needle. It's a chance to move the needle, make someone's life this much better. Can't get better than that. And so we should be vocal. I encourage, you know, the next generation to come into medicine, but be equally vocal about what's not working because if we're there to advocate for our patients, it means advocating on small levels for the prior authorization for their medication and on big levels on political things, on healthcare access, on the way a hospital runs, because that all affects patient care. So don't be shy. I'm glad you mentioned the last part about it. Basically, what you're saying is being like an advocate for your patient or being like an activist, basically, for your patient. Because I think now we're starting to see more physicians become more, you know, active on social media, speak more on actual topics that are going on in the world, gun violence and so forth. It's the stay in your lane movement that occurred a couple of months ago. It's really a very interesting time, I think, for physicians and kind of just stepping out of the shadows of just taking care of patients and now really speaking on global or even just, you know. Well, I think it matters a lot. I mean, I think the stay in our lane, I mean, that really kind of woke us up. But yes, gun violence is our lane because we treat those victims. You know, healthcare is a right. That is our lane, right? Getting health insurance, getting, you know, when the Affordable Care Act was threatened, you know, a couple of rounds two years ago, that is our lane because if our patients lose their health insurance, they can't get their insulin. And that matters. And so we have to speak up. And I don't think it's, you know, it's being political or partisan. It is what is best for our patients. and irrespective of a political party, but I do think we have to, you know, to speak loudly. And I also think that we carry a great weight. And so during that, the, you know, threat to the Affordable Care Act, we made a lot of phone calls to say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Here's where I work. And if my patients lose their health insurance, here's what's going to happen. What exactly is your plan for when they lose their health insurance? You know, tell me, Senator So-and-so. And, you know, they do take your calls. So don't be afraid to call. Mm. Now, you can do so many different things. And you handle so many different things. How do you stay productive? What's a life hack, whether it's technology or from a mind hack standpoint, what are you doing to make sure that you remain productive, that you're able to do, give as much attention to being a physician, author, and the other things that you do? So I get rid of any fluff in my life. So one of my goals is to never walk into a store unless voluntarily, ever. If I can order online, you know, okay, don't not kill my line, my time shopping. I don't watch TV. You know, I leave that to my kids. I read about TV in The New Yorker and they're great shows, but you can't do it all. That's gone. So don't shop, don't watch TV, you know, wear the same clothes I've had for 25 years. They say that's an aspect of really successful CEOs or really successful people. They don't really spend much time on the clothes that they wear. Like they have the preset clothes and that's it. They wear it every day. Right. So what are my big priorities? I want to, you know, be present and aware for my patients. I want to be there for my kids. I want a time to write and time to practice the cello. And, you know, after that, I honestly just don't, the other stuff, you don't really care about the other things so much. And not that they're not good things, but there's only a limited amount of time in the day. So I'm going to pick the three or four big ones and everything else just has to go. So my last question to you is, Dr. Daniel Ofri, I'm not just a doc, I'm a... I'm a human being. And I want to make sure I have things that give me life, you know, artistically, musically, I want to read things that mean, you know, mean a lot. I want to be part of people's lives and relationships. Yeah, patients, family. Mm-hmm. That's me. So Dr. Ofri, if the audience, if the listeners want to get a chance to follow you and learn more about you, where can they do this? 
So I keep all my writings on my website, just danielleofrey.com. Everything I've written is there and books on there's uh, a sort of group study or book group guides for all the books. I also have a monthly email I send out with new articles, things from the Bellevue Literary Review, interesting poetry that I find. And then I have a new book coming out this spring. It's going to be called When We Do Harm, and it's about medical error and how we face up to that. So, Dr. Ofri, I want to thank you again for coming on Docs Outside the Box. I appreciate your time. Also, at the same time, I want to give you kudos and acknowledge you for the contributions that you've made back to medicine with all of your writing, you being vulnerable in many different aspects of your writing, sharing your patient-physician relationship models. And I think that when we go and look back on you know, what your legacy will be, I think obviously it's going to make things that much positive for physicians as well as for patients. So I just want to say thank you very much. And I want to acknowledge you for all the great work that you're doing. Thanks, Nia. I really appreciate it.